By Tuesday night, upwards of 150 million Americans will have cast their ballot for the next president of the United States, as well as to determine the balance of power in Congress and the state legislatures and 11 gubernatorial seats. All sides seem to agree that this election is of historic importance and that it will determine the trajectory of the nation for years to come. Whether on the left or the right, political pundits of all stripes speak as if this election were a referendum on the fate of the nation. And I don't know whether that's true. I know that I've heard it before. I have no intention of speaking to the election at length this morning. I don't think that's what you need from me. And frankly, we've got more important things to do. Rather, I'm going to give you three biblical principles to bear in mind as you prepare to cast your vote, or as the case may be, as you reflect on the vote you've already cast. And then we're going to quickly move on to the text at hand. Three biblical principles to bear in mind. Number one. You do not live in Zion. You live, biblically speaking, prophetically speaking, in Babylon. We Christians are strangers living in exile as we await a better country, a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In other words, the fate of the kingdom of God does not rest on Tuesday's election. America is neither your true home, nor is it your final hope. Regardless of who wins Tuesday's election, we will still be living in Babylon come Wednesday. Number two, however, while living in Babylon, we have a mandate from God. It is found in Jeremiah 29, 7, where he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I take that to mean that we should seek the welfare of Babylon, that is, America. For this is our temporary home, and in its welfare lies our temporary earthly welfare. So let that principle guide you as you vote. Vote for those things which tend to the welfare of a city and of a nation. Things like justice and righteousness and truth and life. Number three. Remember that God raises up and puts down presidents. And he raises up and he puts down legislatures according to his sovereign purposes. And he does so either for blessing or for judgment upon a nation. But his purposes for his people, for his church, are always good. Remember the words that Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. That it is God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. And that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whomever he will. I take that to mean whoever wins on Tuesday or whenever this election is decided will win according to the command of the eternal God. What does that mean for you? 
It means you should sleep well on Tuesday night, regardless of what happens. The fate of this nation is in the hands of a sovereign God, and he may raise it up or he may tear it down as he sees fit. But his church shall stand, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But as I said, we have far more important matters to discuss this morning. Because this morning we come to the end of our study of Romans. It's taken us 26 months and 81 sermons to work our way through this glorious book. The 13 pages of my Bible that Romans occupies are fraying and yellowed with use. It is time to move on. But not before I press home the main point of Romans one final time. And I think that the timing is providential. I know it is. Because how you respond to the book of Romans is infinitely more important than how you vote on Tuesday. This morning, I want to work through the last three verses of Romans, this concluding doxology that is found in verses 25 to 27 of Romans 16. And from them, I want to drive home one last time the major themes of this book. And at the end, I'm going to call you to the obedience of faith. I'm going to invite you to do something with Romans, namely to believe it and to build your life upon it. And I'm going to invite you in doing so to give glory forevermore to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Before we dive in, I want to give you an overview of the structure of this paragraph because it's not easy to see how these various phrases fit together. These final three verses are comprised of two main parts. The first is a doxology, which is an ascription of praise to God. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, And then he concludes that thought down in verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the doxology. And it's broken in two with each half bookending, as it were, three clauses which successively explain how God strengthens us. Okay, So God is able to strengthen us, and therefore to him belongs the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Now, how does he do that? Well, first, he does it according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ. This gospel is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. And the disclosure of the gospel in the prophetic writings to all nations is, thirdly, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. If you've been with us through this study of Romans, you will notice that Paul introduces nothing new in these last three verses. Essentially, it's a restatement of the central themes of Romans, and it is almost a mirror image of the very first paragraph in Romans, in Romans 1, verses 1 to 5, which likewise was an extended definition of the gospel. So let's take the opportunity this morning to remind ourselves of what we have seen over the past two years and to ask God to do in us 
what this passage declares that he does, namely to strengthen and establish us according to his gospel. The main clause of this paragraph is stated at the beginning in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is the main point of the paragraph. It's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. God is able to strengthen you according to the gospel, which Paul has laid out in the previous 16 chapters of Romans. What does it mean to be strengthened by God according to the gospel? Well, strengthen is a word that means to establish or to make firm. It conveys the idea of setting a post in concrete so that it doesn't lean or shift due to weather or the passage of time and eventually fall over. That's what God does for us through the gospel. He sets us, he establishes us in the concrete that is the gospel of Christ. He establishes our soul in the bedrock of the gospel so that we will not be moved by the trials or the tribulations or the temptations or the elections of this life. Now, I mentioned that these three verses in Romans are essentially a restatement of the main themes of the letter. And this is especially true with verse 25, which is itself an echo of the central theme of Romans. The thesis statement of Romans was found back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul set out what he was going to be discussing throughout the remainder of the letter. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to note the parallel between 116 and 1625. In 116, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And in 1625, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. Literally, God is powerful to strengthen and establish us. You see the parallel? They're they're symmetrical. Therefore, I contend that strengthening or establishing in 1625 means essentially the same thing as saving in verse 16. And we know of chapter 1, verse 16 of chapter 1. And we know that for Paul in Romans, salvation has a past and a present and a future tense. According to Paul in Romans, we have been saved That's what he calls justification. We are being saved. That's what he calls sanctification. And we will be saved, which is what he calls glorification. I think that both Romans 1.16 and 16.25 comprehend all three of those tenses that Paul has unpacked in the intervening chapters. So number one, God is able to establish you. That is, God is able to justify you in his sight, to make you right with himself, to get you into a right relationship with himself in a way that does not violate his holy law and his righteous judgment. 
And he does so according to the gospel. I think that's the first thing that Paul is saying in 1625. When you wake up on the morning of November 4th, the most pressing question in your life will not be who won the election. Or did either candidate reach 270 electoral votes? Is the election contested? What happens next? What does this mean for the country? Those questions pale in significance compared to the question of how you will fare when you stand in the judgment of this righteous and holy God. In Romans 1 to 3, Paul explained that all men, you, me, every one of us, Everyone in here and everyone out there, all men have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the worship of lesser things. Gods they can control. Gods they can fashion into their own image. Gods who will not judge them for their sins. In essence, men have exchanged the glory, the worship of the eternal God And they've begun to worship themselves. In the case of the Gentiles, this has taken the form of idolatry and immorality of every kind. That was Paul's point in Romans 1. In the case of the Jews, this has taken the form of hypocrisy and self-righteousness and legalism. Which is really just another form of unrighteousness hiding under the cloak of religiosity. That was Paul's point in Romans chapter 2. Paul concludes in Romans 3 that it doesn't matter whether your sinful exchange of the glory of God takes the form of pagan idolatry and immorality or religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness because the result is the same whether you're righteous or religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile. He says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You cannot take the first step in the obedience of faith until you acknowledge that that is true of you. And if that is true of you, then the most pressing concern that you have this morning and Wednesday morning and every morning is how can I be justified before God? How can I be forgiven of my sin? How can I be acquitted in the day of judgment? How can I get right with God? And the good news that came to us starting in Romans 3.21 was that God is able to establish you, that is to justify you according to his gospel. How? Through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, that is to justify you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ are not two separate things. They are one and the same. The gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Christ is the gospel. And so what did Paul say was revealed in the gospel? That is the power of God to save us. He said, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Well, Paul picks up that theme beginning in Romans 3.21 when he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God demands righteousness of any who would enter into and enjoy eternal life in his presence. And that righteousness, which Romans 3.10 says, you and I lack, we don't have it. We have none of it. We've traded God for idols and for sinful self-gratification. The gospel declares that righteousness which you need and you don't have, God gives through faith alone in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what's revealed in the gospel. A righteousness that is given by God to unrighteous, ungodly people, not through works of the law, not through works of religion, but through faith in Christ alone. God justifies. He establishes us in a right relationship with himself through faith alone. God does not justify those who perform religious works. He does not justify those who make a determination that they're going to start living right so that on the day day of judgment, God will be obligated to save them. God will be in no man's debt. He is obligated to save no one, but he will justify sinners by free grace alone, or he will justify none. So Paul said in Romans four, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What Paul's saying here to you this morning is that if you would be right with God, you must not work to earn God's favor and to put him in your debt. You must rather believe and rest in God's grace. Trust his grace, believe on his son, and receive his righteousness. But that raises a question. How can God justify the ungodly, that is declare the ungodly to be godly, without lying and becoming unrighteous himself? Is not it unrighteous for a judge to declare the unrighteous to be righteous? Is it not unrighteous for a judge to call evil good and good evil, which is essentially what God is doing when he looks at us who are evil and says you are righteous? How can God, the holy judge of all, justify the ungodly? And the principle we found in Romans 3 through 5 is that God substitutes Christ, the righteous one, in the place of unrighteous sinners like us. This principle of substitution or representation lies at the very heart of the gospel. Our sin merited the penalty of death. So Christ became our substitute, our covenant representative, 
and died our death in our place. We had no righteousness that we could commend ourselves to God. Yet Christ attained righteousness for us through his perfect obedience to the will of God. In Romans 5, Paul sets this up as as a parallel. He says, just as Adam, the first man, represented us disastrously in the garden, plunging all of his descendants into sin and death and condemnation, even so Christ represented us perfectly in his life and death, thus raising his people to righteousness and life and justification. What the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam accomplished. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's representative death paid the wages of our sin that we had accrued to the justice of God. And Christ's representative righteousness won eternal life for all who believe. Therefore, according to Paul, God remains just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because he admits none into his presence and glory whose debt of sin has not been paid by Christ. And whose righteousness is not complete. Complete in Christ. God's standards remain perfect and he has perfectly satisfied them in his son on behalf of anyone who will not work but will believe in Jesus. So the question I ask you this morning is are you right with God? Are you? Are you right with your creator? Are you confident That when you stand before God on the day of judgment, that you will be justified in his sight. Nothing else matters. Not really. Not eternally. Beloved, God is able to justify you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's able to establish your soul in righteousness before him. He's able to anchor you in Christ like a fence post in concrete or a building on bedrock such that you will never be moved. But you have to believe this gospel. You need to receive this gospel. You need to embrace this gospel with your heart and your soul and your mind and your life. So I urge you one last time before we leave Romans behind, trust Christ, receive the gospel and be justified in the sight of God. But justification is not the whole of the gospel, not according to Romans. So God is also able to establish you. That is to sanctify you according to the gospel. Through the gospel, God not only establishes us in a right relationship with himself, he also grants us the power by the Holy Spirit to live in a radically new way, a way that increasingly reflects the image of his righteous son rather than the broken, vitiated image that we possessed at birth. 
No longer enslaved by sin and the lusts of our flesh, but energized by the spirit to walk in faith and righteousness and new life. This was Paul's theme in Romans 6 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's justification. No condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's sanctification. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. While we were dead in our trespasses and our sins and ruled by the passions of our flesh, the law was to us a law of sin and death. It could only condemn us. But in Christ, through the gospel, we have been born again. We've been awakened from death to life. We've been indwelt by the very spirit of God and so granted power through faith to live in righteousness and love and and holiness and thus fulfill the intent of the law. It's the same law to the one as to the other. But the power of the spirit is totally different than the power of the flesh. Romans chapters 12 to 15 have described what it looks like when a church of people who have been justified in the sight of God walk by the power of the spirit and so fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is love. It's a glorious picture of a redeemed, renewed community that is full of love and holiness and power in the Holy Spirit. But even justification and sanctification is not the whole of the gospel. So when Paul says that God is able to establish you according to his gospel, he means also that God is able to keep you and ultimately to glorify you. God infallibly saves those who trust in his son. He justifies them. He sanctifies them. And he keeps them and preserves them through every trial and tribulation unto the completion of their salvation at the revelation of Christ on the last day. One more time, I just want you to sit and listen and receive The apex of Romans, that is the last 10 verses of Romans 8. Just just listen at what God is able to do for you if you'll have him. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One day you will stand blameless with great joy in the presence of the glory of the triune God. This is what Paul means when he says that God is able to establish you, to justify you, to sanctify you, to keep you, and to glorify you according to his gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And that is true regardless of what happens on Tuesday. Believe it. Found your hope upon it. Second, Paul declares that this gospel was hidden in ages past, but is now revealed to all nations in the scriptures. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. The mystery of the gospel of which Paul speaks, he says, that which was kept secret for long ages was largely his theme in Romans 9 through 11. When Paul uses the term mystery in reference to the gospel, he's not primarily talking about the saving work of Christ in his death and his resurrection. He's talking about the fact that with the coming of Christ, God's salvation has overflowed the banks of the Jewish people and is flooding out to the nations, to the Gentiles. Listen to how Paul states it in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. You hear the similarity there is kept secret for long ages past, not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit now revealed in the prophetic writings. This mystery is Paul's getting ready to tell you the secret that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Likewise, the only time Paul uses the word mystery in Romans is in 1125 where he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what Paul is doing here in this final doxology is reminding the Roman church that was mostly Gentile and reminding us at First Baptist Nixa, who is, to my knowledge, entirely Gentile, of the truth that he unpacked in Romans 9 through 11. Namely, that we Gentiles, though we are not the natural seed of Abraham, we have been made the children of Abraham by faith through the saving work of Christ, and we are now full heirs of the Abrahamic covenant in Christ. Namely, the promise that we are the people of God and that God will surely bring us into an everlasting inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth where we will dwell in his presence and joy and blessing forever. That's the promise. That's the Abrahamic covenant. You Gentile, 
who once were alienated from Israel. You weren't a part of Israel. You had no access to their promises, no access to their covenants. You were a stranger to the covenants of promise, says Paul in Ephesians 2, which meant that you, Gentile, were once without hope and without God in the world. You are now, through faith in Jesus Christ, a true Israelite and a true child of Abraham. And this mystery, he says, was kept secret for long ages past. It has now been revealed and disclosed to the church through the apostles and made known through the prophetic writings to all nations. In other words, the gospel of the saving work of Christ for all nations is now available for everyone, Jew or Gentile, to read in the Bible. You don't have to have a prophet come reveal it to you. We don't need another apostle to come and teach it to our church. You have the Bible, the prophetic writings. And in this Bible, the mystery of the gospel is revealed. And Paul says, this has all come about. The fact that you have a Bible in your hands this morning is the result of the command of the eternal God. Meaning that it was God's plan from all eternity that you would possess a Bible. And in that Bible, that the mystery of the gospel would be revealed so that you could believe upon it and become a true Israelite, a child of Abraham and an heir of the covenants of promise. God planned that for you before he laid the foundations of the world. Everything. Creation, the fall, the flood, the call of Abraham, the slavery in Egypt, the exodus, the wandering in the wilderness, the conquest of the land, the rebellion of Israel, the rise of the kings, the fall of the kings, the exile of Israel into Babylon, the return from exile, the long centuries of subjugation, first by the Persians, then by the Greeks, then by the Romans, the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection, the establishing of the church, the writing of scripture, the sending forth of the gospel from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to Nixa, Missouri, and everything since, including your hearing of the gospel this morning and your believing, everything has happened according to the command of the eternal God. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Not one hair of our head can be harmed. Not one molecule moves out of its ordained orbit apart from the sovereign will of the only wise God to whom belongs glory forevermore in Jesus Christ. Amen. So what does that mean for you as we conclude Romans? First, it means that salvation comes not through the sharing of Abraham's genes, but through the sharing of Abraham's faith. Ethnic Israelites, biological Jews, are not the people of God and the heirs of the promise. Spiritual Israelites, both Jew and Gentile, who by election and faith are united to Christ, are the true people of God, the true children of Abraham, and the true heirs of the promise. If you have faith in Christ, you have the same inheritance and the same access to the covenant as did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second, it means that if you are holding a Bible right now, you are holding in your hands the revelation of the mystery that was hidden from everyone in heaven and on earth for countless ages. 
Jesus Christ is the full and final revelation of God, and Christ is fully and finally revealed as much as he will be in this present age in the pages of your Bible. What we possess in such abundance, such that we have multiple spare copies collecting dust on our shelves... What we can't seem to make time to read and meditate upon, what is written in Romans, for instance, these are things into which prophets and angels long to look. Isaiah would have, been, would have given anything to be able to read Romans. Abraham would have given everything he owned for just one hour with these 16 chapters. Think of what Psalms David would have written as his soul rejoiced to read just one of the Gospels. Which means, beloved, cherish this book because it is unspeakably precious. Read it, know it, meditate upon it, live on it. Because in this book is the revelation of the mystery of the gospel. In this book is life and strength. Third, the command of the eternal God is not just that you should have this book, but that all nations should have it as well. It is a travesty that ought to keep you awake at night that there are people on the other side of the globe who can't read one of the five books you've got on your shelf. So let this be one more challenge, one more missionary challenge to the church to do whatever it takes, to give whatever it takes to get this book into the hands of nations who don't have it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The third reminder Paul gives in this doxology is that the command of the gospel is faith, namely, not just any kind of faith, a faith that obeys. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. This gospel that we have spent the past two years unpacking is not a theology to be examined and debated and then set aside and forgotten as we get on with real life. This gospel comes with a command from the eternal God to believe it and to obey it. The way Paul states the command is very important. It is the obedience of faith. Listen to me. The, the command of the gospel is not obedience and faith. As if half of our response to the gospel were faith and the other half of our response to the gospel were obedience. The proper response to the gospel is not faith and works, but faith alone from first to last. But not just any kind of faith, because true saving faith is a faith that bears fruit. It is a faith that transforms. It is a faith that comes with the power to walk in newness of life. That's why Paul looks beyond the initial act of faith to the obedience that comes from faith. And so the main point of Romans 6 through 8 is that the faith that justifies you in a right relationship with God is also a faith that sanctifies and transforms you. 
So having spent Romans 3 through 5, proving that sinners are justified by faith alone in the blood and righteousness of Christ alone and not by obedience to the law. That was his theme in Romans 3 to 5. Sinners are justified by faith alone and not by obedience. Paul then spends the next three chapters, Romans 6 through 8, establishing that this free grace that we receive by faith alone doesn't and can't leave us unchanged. It is a grace and a faith that is continually transforming our thoughts and transforming our affections and thereby transforming our lives and our relationships and our marriages and our parenting and our church. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. This is because the same Holy Spirit who came to us in our state of spiritual death and hostility to God and quickened us to life such that we felt the weight of conviction and, and the burden of sin and judgment and we beheld the provision of Christ upon the cross, his blood and his righteousness for all who will believe. This same Holy Spirit indwelt us and took possession of us and began to bend our thoughts and our affections towards God such that we begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates and walk as Christ walked. In other words, the spirit sets us free from the slavery to that sin that would destroy us and makes us slaves of that righteousness, which will bring us life. Romans 6 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So the time has come, as we conclude Romans, to ask yourself whether this work of grace has transpired in your heart and in your life. Examine yourselves. Is my life different for having believed the gospel? And if the answer is no, you don't believe the gospel. Not with true saving faith. Right now, before God, answer the question, am I still a slave to sin or am I a slave to righteousness? Can you truly say that the effect of the gospel in your life has been the obedience of faith? Not perfect obedience, but real, increasing obedience. Or have you bought into the lie that you can believe the gospel without it transforming the way you live and the way that you love? Finally, and most importantly, Paul reminds us that the end of the gospel, its ultimate goal, is the glory of God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The gospel revealed in Romans redounds to the glory of God. It is the gospel of the glory of God. Why? Because it finds its origin entirely in the free grace and sovereign mercy of the Father. Romans 9.16. So then it depends not upon him who wills or runs, but entirely upon God who has mercy. 
If you're saved, it's because God willed it to be so. Therefore, to him belongs the glory. Its basis lies entirely in the redeeming work of the Son. Romans 3.24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you are saved, it has absolutely nothing to do with your works at all. It has everything to do with the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And therefore to Him belongs all glory. And its power lies entirely in the quickening, transforming activity of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You cannot save yourself. You cannot commend yourself to God. You cannot attain the righteousness that God requires. You cannot atone for your own sin. You cannot raise yourself from spiritual death to spiritual life. You cannot bring yourself from unbelief to faith. You cannot command your affections to be other than what they are. You cannot decide one day to walk in the obedience of faith. And so If you are in the obedience of faith this morning, then give glory to the only wise God because he did it. And if you're not, then give glory to the only wise God by casting yourself entirely upon his mercy and asking him to do for you and in you what you cannot do for and in yourself. The message of Romans is cease striving and receive and rest in his grace. And I want to end our two years in Romans by praying for you, that God would establish you, that is justify you, sanctify you, and glorify you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Our Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the gospel, the mystery that it reveals. Thank you for the salvation and the forgiveness of sins, the justification, the sanctification, the promise of glorification that it reveals. Thank you that from eternity past, you commanded that we would receive this gospel. And now I pray to the glory of your only begotten son through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would strengthen and establish everyone here according to the gospel. There are some here who are not rightly related to you. They walk in disobedience. They're slaves of the lusts of their flesh. They don't trust in you. They're trying to be their own God. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They're lost. They're under your wrath. God, justify them through faith in Jesus Christ. 
There are many of us here who are trusting in Christ, but we are experiencing that battle that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, where the good that I want, I earnestly want it, I want it, I want to be holy, but I find another principle at work within my sinful flesh that is constantly dragging me back towards the old way to walk according to the old man. God, establish us, sanctify us, break the chains of addictions and sins and unrighteousness righteousness that so bind us from day to day and set your people free to walk in holiness and newness of life. And then father, I pray that you would convince your people here, those going through trials and tribulations and enduring temptations of every kind, convince them of the truth that if you are for us, none can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not give us freely all things? Who's going to bring a charge against one of God's elect when God has justified? Who is there to condemn when Christ Jesus is he who died? Yes, rather who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who is there interceding for us. Nothing. No danger, no sin, nor, no toil, nor trouble, tribulation, or famine, or disease, or poverty, death, slaughter, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Establish us in that truth this morning so that we will be bold and courageous and steadfast in our faith. God, save Strengthen, establish, and keep according to your gospel through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. And therefore to him belongs the glory forever and ever. And his church said, amen. Amen.